Way back in 2005, two brothers set off on a road trip that would save the world and change television. Ernie and Bert? No. For 15 seasons and 327 episodes, Supernatural took audiences on a wild ride of family, fate, and faith with a rocking soundtrack and a seriously cool car. But that was then, Bobbo, and this is now. And yes, the show has quote-unquote ended, but we're not quite done with the journey. No, we're not. And that's why we're watching it all over again, or for Rob and me, for the first time, diving deep into every episode of Supernatural with the fine folks who made it. And we're taking you along for the ride. Whether you like it or not. I'm Rob Benedict. I played Chuck Shirley, a.k.a. God. Uh, spoiler! Yeah, it is a bit of a spoiler, but hey, spoilers are fair game here. Ah, fine. And I'm Richard Spate Jr., and I played the Trickster, also known as the Archangel Gabriel, and I did a little bit of Loki work in there. Okay, you know we're running out of time. Okay, well, we'll be talking about the entire series, so whatever we say, accept it. You've been warned. So buckle up and settle in. Because this, my friend, is Supernatural, then and now. Well, hello, everybody. I'm Rob Benedict. And I'm Richard Spate, Jr. And we're here to talk about episode 110 of Supernatural. It's called Asylum. Mm, I'm scared already. I'm scared, too. Asylums are scary. Yeah, man. Not a toe-tapping fun place to be. By the way, this is a toe-tapping fun place to be because we have two fantastic guests today. My toe is tapping already. Yeah, Guy Norman B., who was uh, directed this episode and then directed several more Supernaturals as the years went on, and Todd Ehrenauer, who was, I mean, involved with the show from From the the pilot. Yeah, Yeah. from the pilot. He producer on the show, oversaw all of post-production, both fascinating guests, buddies of each other, friends of ours. That's right. It was a great conversation. Yeah, it's great to have him in the room with us. Yep. A lot of people say, are you in the room with people or on Zoom? It's it's back back and forth, but uh, as much as possible, we're in the room, so we're... We're actually in the room with these guys. Yeah, we're either in the room or resume, so we just call it the resume. The resume. So, resuming, episode Asylum, episode 110. Sam and Dean catch wind of a cop and wife being killed. And so they go to investigate. Turns out, the cop was recently at an abandoned asylum. Local legend says is haunted. Listen, it's not a giant newsflash that the abandoned asylum is haunted. Right. I kind of feel like that kind of comes with... Abandoned asylum? You had me at abandoned asylum? <laughs> yeah, I think it's just part of yeah. the thing. Well, guess what? They're right. It actually is haunted. Oh. It's haunted by patients who died in a riot years ago. Ugh. The head psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Sanford Ellicott, mm. was experimenting on patients. That's never a C right there. It's never, again. No. Red flag. They don't like that. And in the experimenting, he's pushing their rage as a type of therapy. Again. Not good. That's not no, in the textbooks. No, not in an asylum. And he's the one of the spirits. He's the one of the head ghosts that's haunting people. He's getting in real-life people's heads and making them do horrible things like kill themselves and their wives. So Sam and Dean do their thing. They rescue a young couple trapped in the asylum and burn the deceased bones as a way of getting rid of the ghosts. Good for them. Yeah but not before being a bit haunted and messed with themselves. Uh, well, you know, that comes with the territory. Now, Robbie, it's review time. <laughs> Robin Rich's... Review time. Unfettered reviews. Rob, what do you think of the episode? Let me check my notes. Oh, boy, snooze fest. Uh, I liked it. I liked it a lot. It was very scary. Yeah. Very scary. Um, yeah, I really I really like this one. I, I love a good haunted asylum. We get to see some of Sam's start to have kind of psychic abilities. We see that he has visions and things that we saw in the last episode, episode nine. But in episode 10, we're going on vibes. He's getting a bad feeling about things. I Yeah, I, I thought this episode was great just because the whole asylum idea yeah. is super creepy. The set they had for the asylum, which yeah. we both know is an abandoned asylum. That's actually haunted. For real up in Vancouver. Yeah. It was so cool. So, I mean, yeah. it's so much better than they just, they didn't build some set. They went out to that building. Right. And it's, you could tell, it's just super creepy. It's creepy. Yeah, no, I bought it. And, uh, you know, there's a scene where Sam goes in and talks to the psychiatrist's son. I loved that. I loved that. That guy was great. One scene. That guy was great. And also, I loved that scene because we don't know what happened in that room. No. You know, like, he he says something about Dean. Again, and that's what I love about this show. It's it's actually, you know, season one, people always say it's Monster of the Week. But there's still other things going on, like Sam's... You know, Sam has issues with the way that he was raised, and and does he have issues with Dean that go way back later in the episode when oh, yeah. Sam's possessed yeah. by the doctor? He rages out at Dean, you know, and then later apologizes. But you know, yeah, there's, but there's at that point, there. you know, at that point, the apology. I love that. You know, Sam's like, Dean, do we need to talk about this? And I'm thinking, dude, 
you just hated on your bro and tried to shoot him in the face. Yeah. I don't think Dean's out of place kind of hanging on to that for a yeah, hot sec. Yeah, yeah. Let's like, not talk about it right let's now. Let's not put the toothpaste back in the tube. I don't know yet. So fast. Yeah, no, he does. He hands him a gun that uh, Sam doesn't know is not loaded, and Sam tries to shoot him in the face. But I know. Possessed when he does that. But there's issues with Sam. Sam's working through some stuff. So we like it. The, the end of the, the, the Robin Rich review is... We liked it. Two full beards. That's our review. Yeah, two full beards. We give this one two full beards. <laughs> I just want to say, just to finish my thought, he he goes into the psychiatrist's office and brings up the idea that, hey, mm-hmm. was your dad a psychiatrist too? And the guy's like, uh, we're not going to talk about that. That's when we know something's up. Yeah, sure do. Uh, anyway, it's a good one. It's a classic one. And uh, we are so lucky that in this episode of our podcast, we get to talk to producer Todd Ehrenauer and director of the episode, Guy Norman B. Great journeyman TV guys and both uh, heavily involved in Supernatural from the early days. Yeah. Should we get into it? Let's do it. Let's go. We got such a treat today. A doubleheader of uh, gentlemen to interview. Original gangsters. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Director Guy Norman B. Yes, exactly. And associate producer Todd Ehrenauer. Hello, guys. Hey, Hey, how are you? Really good. Really good. It's such a treat to have you both here. Again, like Rich said, two of the original gangsters of Supernatural. <laughs> Especially you, Todd, because, Todd, let's just start right here. You are one of the few people that started on the pilot. Yeah, one of the few crew members right. that started on the pilot. And uh, of crew, there might be one or two people that stayed till the end. One is uh, Mr. Bruce Gorman, yep, uh, assistant editor of ours. But the pilot was shot in L.A., so actual production crew members weren't able to stay with the show right. throughout the run. Right. Now, what'd you do? Because I know you have a history with Kripke. Yes. T- tell us about that. I can only tell you some parts. Okay. <laughs> I, I've been sworn to secrecy on others. Yeah, but others lot, others lot of, are not podcastable. A lot of bleeping in this episode. Yes. So I graduated from uh, college and moved out here from The Ohio State University. Ooh. So from Columbus, I packed up my Toyota Corolla and drove out here. One of my buddies, a good friend of mine who was also a mutual friend of Eric Kripke's, he introduced us in New Year's, 96, 97. Wow. And let's see, January 1st, I slept on Kripke's couch after hanging out for a couple of days. (laughs) And over imbibing. And we stayed in touch and contact, and all of his friends became my friends. To this day, they're some of my closest friends, That uh, the first people that I met when I moved out here. Awesome. And so he invited you, when this when Supernatural took off, or, or when the pilot picked up, he invited you to be a part of it? Yeah, I was working on another show through Warner Brothers, but it was for Fox. It was called Johnny Zero. Hmm. I was working on that, and he said, I got the show. I'd love for you to come aboard, and are you available? And I said, I'll make myself available. Tell me where and when, and dropped everything and jumped on board, and it was a fantastic ride with Nutter and McGee and his crew. Yeah. Right. So you're, at this point, you're associate producer, and so what goes on? Like, when the show gets picked up, they're up in Vancouver, do you go back and forth, or you're mostly in L.A.? So... Pilot was L.A., Mm -hmm. and then post-production for the series remained in L.A. So we were in Burbank. Our offices were set up in Burbank along with the writers, producers. Production was up in Vancouver. And occasionally I'd go up for different reasons, whatever the case may be, for daily stuff or post-visual effects stuff Mm -hmm. or insert units and got to meet the crew that way. And it's it's been a great ride. Everybody just became family so quickly. A little inside baseball question for you. So for fans of the show listening to this, even if they don't know the show, but they don't know Hollywood so well, what was your day-to-day task? Like like, as an associate producer, what were you tasked to do? So associate producer is a title, like finish the series as a producing title. So I was the head of post-production for the show. So along with Phil Scratia, who also dealt with production side and directing, I was the go-to for budget schedules and visual effects, everything in between dealing with editorial facilities, vendors. Mm-hmm. Everything post went through you then? I mean, everything in the post-production process yeah. came across your desk? Yes. 
That's why our, our paths only crossed with you after the fact, after right. done the, the shooting. I think I think I saw Todd a couple of times when I was uh, actually directing and going into edits. I would kind of lean in and, and say hi, you know, when, he, when yeah. his LA offices. We also have with us director of this episode and many to come, Guy Norman B. Hey. Hey, Guy. How are you? Good, man. This is a trip down memory lane. It really is. Because that, like you, we were saying earlier, it was 15-something years ago. And I remember very clearly, I mean, the good timestamp is I remember pushing my nine-month-old daughter around in a stroller through like Metro Town or something. And and that nine-month-old daughter now turned 17 years old yeah. in like a week. It's crazy. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. crazy. She wasn't walking then and now she drives like a <laughs> madman, mad <laughs> yeah. woman. Yeah. Crazy girl. Yeah, no, totally. I We associate the show with the age of our children. <laughs> Uh, I have a same. I have, I have a son who's born in 2004. He, he just turned 18. <laughs> uh, yeah, crazy. So you directed this episode. How did you get on board? I remember getting a call from my agent at the time, and she said, there's this new show in Vancouver. David Nutter, I think, recommended me because being a camera operator early in David's career, I remember him and I hitting it off. And then I remember also a year early, I think it was a year earlier, I had an overall kind of general meeting with Eric Kripke about Tarzan and Jane and being one of the, uh, being the producer director. And I eventually didn't get that job, but he offered me an episode. And unfortunately, I think it got canceled before I even got to go to fly to Toronto to do it. But so Eric knew me and David Nutter knew me. And so um, the way it was described to me is sort of classic retellings of these classic you know, the prom date that gets hitchhikes on her way home and the guy comes to check on her the next day and the, the mother says, well, she she died a year ago last night. You know, ooh, and Boogeyman and, you yeah. know, all those great classic urban myths. And yeah. so I was into it and I always say I'm not a huge horror movie fan, but then again, you know, The Shining, Jaws, of course, I, like maybe three or four of my top ten movies that I'm a fan of are horror movies. So I embraced it and uh, was excited to do it, a new show, and uh, with, with some friends that I knew already. Can you, awesome. can you describe a little bit, uh, for people who may not know, uh, what a Steadicam is, That's how that would be different from, say, putting a camera on a dolly? You know, Steadicam is, everyone kind of refers to it, or at least at that time, as new technology, but it had been around since the 70s. Rocky, The Shining, um, anytime you see a floating camera point of view that is smooth, but it goes through places that a dolly can't fit, like a doorway or upstairs, that's usually Steadicam. So it's a, it's a hybrid between handheld, because you are holding it, but you're not holding it on your shoulder. You're kind of carrying it away from you with a spring-loaded articulating arm. And uh, it's like learning in a musical instrument, because you have to have practiced a lot before you jump in and start selling yourself as a camera operator, because if you get those kind of, we call them swimmy, uh, horizons, it, you you can literally make the audience seasick because that's the hallmark of bad Steadicam is it calls attention to itself. So by the time I did ER, I, you know, again, had like five years of camera experience and got pretty good at it. And I just loved it. It was the sort of the perfect cross between music, which I, you know, grew up loving and of course cinema. It combined everything I liked. It was technical. It was, I was an artist. I got really close with actors and I realized you know, I want to direct. And and so even back then, I knew I wanted to be a director. So walk me through that segue. How did you go from doing what you're doing to directing? Uh, 99, well, actually 98, I got a call from John Wells and Chris Chulak. And, you know, at the time, because ER was so big and they knew I wanted to direct, we sort of bartered a little bit, which is help us set the look and the feel of, a, of a, one of our pilots coming up and we'll let you direct one of the episodes if it gets picked up. So in 98, we did a big two-hour Lou Diamond Phillips, which we had all the hopes in the world, didn't get picked up. In 99, they did two. They sent me the scripts to West Wing and Third Watch. And Third Watch was in New York City, cops, firemen, paramedics, shootouts, car chases, fire, of course. And while West Wing was beautifully written, and I you know, I knew the cast, and Tommy Shalami, the director of that pilot, really kind of bent, twisted my arm and said, hey, man, we're going to do ER, but like in the West Wing of the White House. I wanted to do the crazy shit. In, you know, of course, New York City. And Chris Chulak, again, who became my mentor, was going to direct that pilot. And he said, come and help me set the look. We're already put for 12, which I didn't really know what that meant, but it meant that they already had made a deal with Warner Brothers to do 13 episodes. And I had always heard if you can spend a year of your life in New York City uh, and move there, do it, because there's nothing like that energy. And, you know, you don't have to drive anywhere, cabs, subways, walking, whatever. So I said, here's a good chance to do that. 
And um, I directed episode 13 at uh, what was like December of 99, the beginning of 2000, and I kind of haven't looked back. And then, yeah, I, you know, sort of got a really great agent and started um, booking other shows outside of the Wells camp. Amazing. Ahoy, Rich Spade here. Hope you're enjoying the episode, but we got to pull over for a second for some messages. Thanks for listening. Now back to the episode. So uh, it's now 2005, and you get brought on to direct this episode of Supernatural Asylum. Yes. Do you remember... Well, first of all, you you had a story about how you and Todd here met. Oh. What is that story? Well, Todd and I met on, I, I, on Supernatural, but there's something that happened about five years ago. I'm a huge comedy fan, and there was a new show on TV that my best friend was the camera operator on and said, I just, I'm doing this show, and we're laughing our ass off every day. When it airs, you got to watch it. It's John Lithgow, and yeah, it was called Trial and Error. So half hour, I'm watching it. I'm crying laughing. There's some great, I mean, some, I mean if, you ever, if you guys remember watching it, it's great, or find it if you can. I noticed that the star is a young actor named Nicholas D'Augusto, and I'm like, I know Nicholas. That was my male lead that we flew up from L.A. on Asylum. Great kid. I'm really excited for him. So I pay attention to the credits. There's a, the creator and the writer is a guy named Jeff Astroff. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. And I look him up on Twitter, and I follow him, and, and uh, he follows me right back. And I said, Jeff, I love your show. It's, it's just laugh out loud, crying. It's so great. To make a long story short, Nicholas D'Augusto, uh, you know, was one connection. But then I realized somehow or another through Twitter that Jeff Astroff is Todd Arenauer's brother-in-law. What? No He's married to Jeff's sister. Anyway, so there's that one degree of separation wow. in Hollywood. Yeah. So anyway, interesting story. Wow. I also uh, was a post-producer for season two of Trial and Error. No All right. Which go. they shot in Vancouver. Oh, wow. And my, my buddy was bummed because he's an L.A.-based you know, camera <laughs> operator. So he's like, ah, oh, I'd love to do that. You know, anyway. Well, Nicholas is a kind of actor that he's, I loved Election. And he's in Election. Oh, That's of course. the first thing I, when I saw his face. And I looked it up on IMDb and Election was like his first thing that he did. And then after that, he, you know, kept working. Right. Such a recognizable face now. Such a baby face, too. Yeah. He's kind of always has a baby face. Rewatching Asylum, looking at his face, I'm like, it, it looks exactly the same. <laughs> exactly the same. And he was, so, he was so stoked. I remember, you know, the director's prepping room is across from this giant in Vancouver on Supernatural, this giant boardroom, conference room. And I remember walking into the director's prepping room and not closing my door and hearing Nicholas talking with his, this is 2005, talking with his dad and just gushing about him having the best time. It's just the greatest crew. These guys are so not, oh, I got to go to a, a wardrobe fitting. I'm so excited. So he, <laughs> he was really into it. And the other great story about that is I think a year earlier I'd done a couple episodes of a show called Veronica Mars. And one of my guest stars was a young actress named Alona Tall. And I loved her to death. And I, so when I realized we were going to fly up the male and female leads from L.A., I threw my my suggestion to the casting director about Alona and they go, Oh, we love Alona. Awesome. So that we're kind of making that deal. And I guess because she, she's Israeli, but I mean, you know, lives in the U S obviously, but they couldn't get the paperwork to get her to Canada or something in time. Oh. So she had to drop out and we got, you know, Brooke Nevin, who was looking back now, she did a great job and it worked out to Alona's advantage because she eventually became like a, a recurring Yeah, role. bigger character. Yeah, bigger character. So I kind of, you know, was happy that they, you know, we, they eventually got her. They eventually got her and got the paperwork or whatever, and she went to be a Harvell, I think it was, right, that character. Right, exactly. Yeah, so there you go. There's a couple little quick trivia stories. Good, good trivia. <laughs> so, so, Guy, you get up there to direct, right? You've got yes. your cast. You do all those pre-steps. You are the first guy guy yeah. to sort of become a recurring director in the show like you you were the aside from Kim Manners who became the PD you were the first guy that started coming back my question yeah. is when you started how well oiled was the machine when you got up there to direct this episode what kind of rhythm was going on on the set with the crew and all that kind of stuff well it was it was pretty cool i mean everybody was really excited because i remember i think my first day of prep the production manager producer line producer at the time came in and said guys we picked up. We got a back nine. We're legit. I think it was Cyrus Yavna. And he came in and so there was like party atmosphere. It's like if we could have or if they could have popped bottles of champagne, they would have. But it really it launched us into this episode with a great feeling. And I remember, you know, 
I knew some people already on the crew because I had worked on like True Calling and some other Vancouver-based shows. So I knew the whole prop department. So it was, it was kind of cool. I mean, I, there was a lot of people that I typically try and go down to the set one of my first days of prep if they're on look on set, not, you know, on stage and say hi to everybody. So it was like they had already kind of warmed up the people that didn't know me like, oh, we're going to have a great time with Guy, you know, all, all the good things you want to hear as, sure, a, as right, a guest yeah. director. But the, no, the interesting thing was I did Asylum and then I didn't come back to direct again until season six. No what? way. It was, you know, I didn't know Bob or Phil. And I did know Kim Manners very well. And Kim had just been named, I think, or like maybe two or three episodes before that. Because when the show started, they didn't have a like producer director. So Kim, they kind of yanked out of retirement and got him to come up and do that show. Me and David Nutter, I go way back with Kim because I had operated for him on some shows. And I just, I, print it! You know, he's got the greatest, or he did, the greatest uh, general. Uh-huh. Come on, guys. All right, let's, let's kick this in the ass. He was the greatest. <laughs> and we all, everybody loved that, obviously. If you, you, I'm, I'm sure everybody's talked on this podcast yeah. has, has fond, great memories of Kim Manners. Yeah. So I knew those guys. And it's just one of those things where, you know, they call, and if you're not available, they try you again next season or, like, in the back nine. If you're not available, they kind of move on. I mean, the interesting thing was I came up for other episodes of other series, and I would have dinner, drinks, whatever, with Jensen and Jared and some of the crew members. So I kept in touch with everybody, and they were like, well, we want to have you come back up. And so eventually, I think on season six, they shook things up a little bit. Obviously, Eric moved on. Right. Sarah kind of took over, and um, my agent— my new agent at the time was friends with Bob Singer. They're both San Francisco Giants fans for whatever that's worth. Uh. And, right, <laughs> he says, let me put in a call to Bob because, you you know, you one of my things when I signed with his agent was, you know, give me a debrief. What shows did you have a great experience on? Mm. What, what? And so I said, you know, kind of as an afterthought, you know, I did this show Supernatural. I know they just got picked up again because I'm friends with all the guys. We text and everything. And I thought I did okay on this show, this episode called Asylum, and I had a great time. And so he made one phone call to Bob and said, Bob, and Bob just said, yeah, we'll put him back in the roster. And I, and I think I did Family Matters. And then that turned into the the West was Gallows Pole and right. eventually became Frontierland. So I got back in the fold in season six, but for like four seasons, I didn't, there hmm. was like, you know, nothing. Interesting. But that's how the business works. Sure. Well, you, you know, you know that's how it, Supernatural worked. I mean, yeah. we all kind of, we worked on it early and then there was a, and then you kind of circles back around right. for you. Yeah. And you don't take that stuff personally because it, it is just where they reach out or you change agents, you know, reps. And, sure. You just fall out of favor. That is one of the things I think is interesting about network TV that not everybody understands is that there's a slew of directors that come through the door. You get a recurring, you get a a writer's room with a lot of consistent writers in the room uh, over the years. That might change, but there's always some old guard in there to bring up the new guard. They're actors. You can hold onto a cast for a long time. Sometimes there's changes, but overall there's some, there's some, again, stalwart figures in the cast. The directing can be really volatile in terms of who's coming in and who's coming out you can have a season and this is one thing i never understood about the business if like if season one all the directors are great it's not just as easy to bring them all back because they all go on to do other things right right you know yeah you're not they call it the golden handcuffs which is being a producer director and you know one of my first gig third watch they made me a producer director which kept me in new york at the time i was a new director i mean a you know experienced camera operator and been on sets all around the world and everything but it was a great experience, but a lot of times the director doesn't want that because you want that you want to be footloose and fancy free mm-hmm. and, and jump on other shows and live in different camps. But yeah, I mean that's you know it's a three week commitment, seven days of prep, eight eight or nine days of shooting. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about Asylum is, I think it was a nine day shoot. My last day was with a second unit, but I think eight of, or seven or eight of those days were completely a hundred percent at uh, Riverview, which is as we all know. The decommissioned and true insane asylum that has that is rumored to have ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> so let's just reiterate that where this thing was shot was actually a an abandoned a former insane asylum in Vancouver, Canada. Yeah, and and if you do anything in Vancouver, if even if you don't shoot there, you will scout it as. I mean, I think everything. I've, I mean, in the you know the the dozens and dozens of episodes I've done in Vancouver, at least one day. Again, you know, we, I may not shoot there, but I definitely have scouted it for pretty much everything I've ever done. And, and so it was perfect. So it was kind of written around that location because I think John Scheiben, who co-wrote it, co-wrote Asylum, had been on X-Files. 
And so he goes, man, you know, Riverview is perfect for this. So we showed him some photos. Of course, Jerry Wanick said, I'm going to, you know, shit this all up and we'll do these old rusty gurneys. And yeah. so, and, you know, I can't, I'm, I'm the president of the Jerry Wanick and Serge Leducey yeah. fan club, as we all are. Yeah. Um, so, so Jerry and I just had a blast with it. And, you know, if you remember looking back at that episode, shooting on film, low, you know, um, low light. Yeah. It's one of the most gorgeous thing. One of the things I'm most proud of. Um, oh, and, Todd, and Todd's probably got tons of great stories about working with Serge. Yeah, well, and Todd, with this episode, you know, there's obviously you've got a lot of ghosts, effects with that. How was that for, in post-production, putting that together? And how did that change once technology matured and we went digital later in the show? It's actually an interesting episode to ask that question because right at, I think this was like episode 10, and then Skin was either just before or just after it. Yeah, I think just before. And this was during the run of the first season where, and uh, studios, networks tend to do this on first season shows. First season shows in general don't run smooth until you're near the end. And we were thrown into a situation where the first few episodes, one script was not quite ready to go. Another script got put into production early earlier and also after we shot there was some shuffling around which it caused a couple episodes right there in the middle 9 10 11 12 around there to have really fast turnarounds in post so asylum was one of the episodes that had maybe 12 days of post and i just want to say for people might not know the term turnaround meaning they it had to go from footage to a right. arable episode very yeah. quickly. Yeah. So the turnaround, when, when I say 12 days of post, that means that refers to from when we get the last day, the last day's footage until we have to deliver, right. final delivery. So within those 12 days, those were work days, not including weekends, but you have to go through, the editor's got to get a cut, a director comes in, they got to get their cut. Good Lord. Producers have to get their cut, and then they send it to the studio, who gives notes? Send it to the network. Who gives notes? And for Jesus. a first season show, right? Pretty much early on, lots of cooks in the kitchen. There are, and and a lot of times the studio wants two passes before it goes to the network. Then the right. network wants two passes of notes. So we knew ahead of time that this schedule was coming up, and you really don't have any options on giving one cut more time than the other. You just, I just had to say to the studio and network, the only way to do this is for you guys to get one cut, which happens often these days because right. the schedules are so tight and you have to cut down the edit. The editor basically has to ha have his cut done as soon as he receives the dailies. And the Anthony Pinker was the editor on this, great editor. Yeah, um, good dude. And he, I don't know how he did it, but he assembled this thing so quickly and I think it was this episode, I think I called you up, Guy, and I said, you have about a half a day for your cut. <laughs> <laughs> and normally for an hour show, DGA rules, you need to give the director their time in the editor well, room. Like three days Which is four right? days. Four days. Four yeah. days for an hour-long show. Editors should get at least two days, and they generally need more also. Everybody needs more days. You could cut any show. You could be in there for days sure. for any individual cut. So... I had to call Guy and say, we, we don't have four days to give you. Can you come in for <laughs> two like hours, a, like an afternoon? <laughs> Let's grab a cup of coffee yeah, and uh, yeah. cut the episode. Yeah, and generally, I mean, sort of the my style of directing any, in general is I used to joke around that, you know, the DJ rules give me four days. I usually only need about four hours. So I was happy with that. But then I, I think I went right on to, an, I think it was a show called The Unit, which was L.A., but it was way out in Santa Clarita. And I said, man, I, I, there's, I, I'm not gonna be able to even come in. You know, that's just, again, that's the peril of being a freelance director is I, you know, I may, I may jump on a plane the day after right. I finish an episode. So I hit the lottery with Anthony, incredible editor. I think we talked on the phone and, and that was, that was kind of it. And Ken, and of course uh, I said to Kim Manners, just help me out. I mean, you know, do your best and, and, you know, again, here's the guy that just came off of directing 50 of the 200 episodes of X-Files. Yeah. So, you know, I knew it was in good hands. And so there you go. I mean, it, it, yeah, it, I think I, you I think you spoke with Anthony for a little bit, gave him a uh, pass of notes. And then Anthony just jammed it together, sent it on to the producers and uh, even the producers, Eric 
Bob, Phil. You got five minutes each, guys. <laughs> Pretty much. That was it. We got to send it to the studio and network in a day and a half or however yeah, much they, time we had. They got to generate all those visual effects. Right. right. And if you notice, you look at the show, you could count on one hand how many visual effects are noticeable in that show. Yeah. That's a huge credit to Guy and the crew <laughs> and what they did. On set. On set, right. in camera. Right. Actually during production. Right. And, and maybe with the help of some of the real ghosts that actually lived there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and, they're, and they're there. Really helped out the production. I, I, have an, I have a question about one of the effects because specifically watching it, we watched it yesterday, preparing for this. Right. There's a shot guy where, where the guys go down the hall, like they, haven't, they can't find anything creepy yet. And you pan down off oh, the, the, the and the guy doing the head bit. Yeah, that was in camera. Yep. Yeah. That's an a thing. I mean, it was film, so that's an airflex camera. Remind me of the film Jacob's Ladder. Exactly. And that and there's an Aussie video or whatever that we kind of referenced, but that was an idea I had. And I said, I think we can do this in camera. Of course, Serge is up for any challenge. And basically what it does is you program that into the camera and it changes the frame rate and the shutter angle, I think, at the same time. So you, as as you make the pan across to the guy that we kind of, this poor actor, we shoved him underneath a gurney or, you know, some kind of examination table. Um, we had him just shake his head, just regular speed, but what, what the film camera does in post. And so that's all in camera. And, uh, yeah, I haven't done that. Dude, that, it, dude. it looks <laughs> phenomenal. I'm sitting there watching it going, I know what year this was made. This, that's <laughs> a seamless effect. Yeah. And it that, that answers it. It's yeah. in camera. And yeah. that, that, that entire effect is just, a camera speed thing. Yeah, you dial it in. You tell the camera, I want to go from this frame rate, 24 frames per second, to I guess it's like 12 frames per second or maybe six frames per second in five seconds. Are you burying it in the move? Yeah, so as you make the pan, you push the button. And so as you make the pan, the shutter angle changes too, which gives you the smear, which makes the head kind of smear back and forth so it's God, not so sharp. I, creepy as hell. So so creepy and so yeah. effective. Yeah. And, and what about the, 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 the ghost's going in and out is that a shooting shooting an empty room and then shooting a person and just sort of is yeah. that an editing you mean when they shoot them and they, and they're kind of in and out they kind of like oh the glitch the glitch yeah. the glitch the glitchy ghost yeah i think i think that's all that's all done in post and it's also i think not necessarily something you need to send out to the special effects house i think that's an editor we did trip. that we did that a couple of different ways the first few times we did that certainly in the pilot there were a number of times with the woman in white that effect that look didn't materialize until after. It wasn't always shot with the backplate. It had to be created in post. And there are a lot of things that we sort of manufactured in post initially and then um, did it correctly after that. Meaning when you say doing a backplate, you mean like you'd shoot the background, then you'd put the actor in, take the actor out, so you have, you can layer up the plates on this Right. Volume. If you have a clean backplate without the actor in it, then you have many more options that you could do with post and visual effects. Uh, you could put the actor in, out, and move him around, put somebody else in there. Uh, they right. Got, they could hop. Yeah, I mean, and, and I remember really trying to go for as much in-camera as possible, maybe because we knew we had a short turnaround. But also, John Scheiben and Richard Haddam, I think that's how you pronounce his last name, they co-wrote the episode. And in prep, they go, "We're gonna, guy, we're going to send you a couple DVDs. Watch these. It's what we're all hopped up on and what was inspiring for us. And one was uh, Shudder. But it, not the American version, um, and another one called A Tale of Two Sisters. One's from Bangkok and one's from South Korea. It was like at the height of when the ring and— Right, and, right. And, and so I watched both those, and they're, all the scary stuff is just p real makeup and real in-camera stuff. And it's super—not—I wouldn't say low budget, but it's like—it's not a $100 million budget. And so I said, you know, this is, this is the stuff that really scares people— I remember watching one of them on a weekend, middle of the day, bright and sunny day, and it scared the crowd. I had to turn it off and go take a walk down oh. Burrard Street for <laughs> a sandwich or something. Cause, well, there's something about low-budget horror films that are scary. And the Asian, you know, that particular you know point in time, The Ring, The Grudge. But but if you get a chance, I know they both were both remade as American movies, but a, the South Korean A Tale of Two Sisters and the Bangkok version of Shudder hmm. are are just like, like um, textbook. Well, how you can scare people without well, a lot of money. Speaking of influences, uh, you said The Shining was an influence of you as yeah. a filmmaker. Is, do you have any of that influence in this episode specifically? Yeah, I mean, you know, just the floating down the uh, hallways, you know, with Steadicam, of course. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Kubrick was a master of um, 
letting things happen in the frame without moving the camera too much. Or when you move the camera, make it very subtle. So I liked all that just kind of like real slow sliding dolly slides and stuff. I think I was so, you know, into those two movies because the the guy sent me the DVDs that that was kind of the benchmark. And of course The Shining, but yeah, um, there you go. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's one of my favorites that we've watched so far this episode. Um, <laughs> you always love a good, you know, scary asylum yeah. uh, episode. Yeah, I hit the lottery because it was it was a great script, you know, going in. And yeah. we, we scheduled, you know, Kevin Parks and I, you know, I mean, he scheduled it. But we kind of said, here, we're going to... Because the way we did it is we tried not to go to different floors. We tried to make one floor look like many floors. Because once you shoot out a floor, if you just change the set dressing... And do different shafts of light. You know, of course, it was just it was easy to pull your wheelchairs out and put like examination table where a wheelchair was. And you come back the next day, you're in another hallway. So the guys would come around a corner, and we'd come back the next day and we'd finish the scene, but it'd be the same floor because we realize once you start moving, you know, eight hundred pound dollies right. up and down. So you just redress the the yeah, floor. Yeah. So so we had a plan and uh, we stuck to it. And then um, I mean, the only funky thing was that ninth day with a completely new crew and trying to maintain oh, the, yeah. the level of smoke. And I mean, that, if you know Serge's work, that like that atmospheric tube of death, or we used to call it, or <laughs> whatever, it's very specific. specific. And so um, that was the only like thing. But uh, you know, again, looking back, it all it all cuts together. You can't really tell what's first. No. Or second. So when they uh, so when they go down in the basement for the the end scene where they finally find the evil doctor ghost. Yeah. Is that the same floor? I think that was on stage. I think we shot that first. Oh, oh wow. Is that because it had fire in it or something? Yeah, be... yeah, and we also knew that after scouting, we couldn't find exactly the place we wanted that would serve the script. We also needed those shots earlier because those were the ones ah, with the visual effects. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, and, you had to sh- oh, and, J- and Dean goes yeah. through the wall there too. Yep. So like, you know, he gets shot through the wall. Yeah, that was, right. a, that was a big stunt. That was, uh, oh yeah. Yeah, we were lucky to have amazing stunt doubles for the boys, yeah. which was, we utilized them a lot as you can tell from I, 300 episodes of worth of... I have, I have a question about the, uh, this is the first episode where I realized that they're sh- when they're shooting ghosts, they're shooting salt they actually explain that they're shooting right. salt pellets or something right how much of that when you get a script both of you really do you, you know you had to sort of go into the the mind of the writers and what and eric and what the bible says about you know what i mean what what eric's bible says about how you kill ghosts or slow them down or whatever do you have to ask questions in terms of like what are the rules here with ghosts and you know yeah. like silver bullets with with werewolves especially know? then when when the rules are being established yeah yeah i think i think there was just kind of you know you, you you flag or mark that in your script and say look i just want to make sure we're serving the story right here do they disappear or they just glitch or they go away and come right back so i think that's all a part of our extensive set of meetings as richard knows mm. you sit in you know and then you you combine meetings you'll have like a stunt meeting that's also a visual effects it's also like special effects so so the, the special the, effects the first meeting when a uh, when a script comes out when the new director when the director comes in you have the concept meeting right and that's when everybody all departments are are there around the table or these days or around your laptop <laughs> monitor. Around the Zoom. And it just everybody is asking every single question that you guys asked and more. Yeah. What, what are they wearing? What what number of day is this? Does it all take yeah, place over one day? Do they have a change of clothes? And right. when it, they shoot and that disappears, does that leave residual and yeah, residue those, on them? Yeah, those meetings, wow. that's when everybody goes, okay, I will provide props. We'll say I will provide the sawed-off shotgun. Visual effects will say I'll provide the muzzle flash. And so everybody knows what they're, you know, what they've agreed to. And think that can change, too, because cause the prop guys will go, you know, if it's all the same, I can just do, you know, as long as you're not going to put the camera or an actor in front of the, the muzzle of the gun, I can actually do that as a, as a quarter load. I know this is like a very sensitive topic now, but so so that that's when you get all that cleared out. Because when you're shooting on the day, when you go, okay, bring in the... We're going to do that gag. You don't want somebody to go, well, I thought you guys were doing it. Well, it's fascinating, too, as you talk about this guy, is that so many of those questions, to your point, Todd, happen day one, afternoon oh, one. Yeah, yeah. And if you're the guy who got the script the night before, you're like, I don't know yet. Yeah, you don't. And and <laughs> no. it's the concept meeting because you're talking about the concept of these moments. Right. So there, you come out of this meeting with more questions than answers. Oh, man. And... A lot of times the writer or the director, wherever that question is directed to, whoever needs to come up with that answer, it's, I'll get back to you. 
because there's also going to be rounds of rewrites based on that meeting. And you might not know where you're shooting it. Like, right. is set yeah. specific or, yeah. you know. This is the reason actors don't get scripts until after that meeting. <laughs> right. No, but, you you know, I'll always talk to wardrobe about if it's a fight scene, I'll say, be great to put him in a big Carhartt. That way we can we can pad him. So, which is, you know, you get the, the elbow pads. And so they'll go, okay, well, I'll, I'll provide the Carhartt jacket, and, and hopefully you have a stunt guy in that meeting who says, okay, I've got great pads, they're low profile, and we'll say, well, is it going to be Mike Carpenter or Jared? Well, it'll be both. As soon as Jared gets, like, thrown out of frame, I'm going to cut to Mike Carpenter, so, so then you need doubles. Well, maybe we need triples. What if it rips? So you get all those things ironed out ahead you of time. Over, almost over plan for it. Like, oh, I, yeah. I, I know there are days that I come into work and I have a stunt double for something that I'm like, I think I could probably do yeah, that. I'm yeah. just falling down or whatever it is. But they dress my stunt double. Yep. They put a fake beard on him. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's all done and he's ready to go. And then he doesn't get used, but it's just in case, right? Yeah. He joins your band, takes your place. <laughs> <laughs> Hell, man. And, and he's Richard Spade. Hello, everybody. <laughs> it's Richard right next to me. Uh, yeah, so, the, you know, that's a big part of prep. I mean, prep is almost everything. And I, I mean, I mark up my scripts. I, you know, I keep the, uh, the, the Sharpie highlighter miniature stick, you know, post-it note companies in business when I get a script. I mean, a lot of it's done now on scriptation on, a, on, <laughs> yeah. on your iPad, but I still like a physical paper script as well. I do too. Me too. I do yeah, too. Yeah. I mean, there's something about it. Um, but, uh, yeah, you don't want to make, be making these questions on the fly. Right. I mean, cause I remember there's something where Brooke's character, you know, the, the female lead in Asylum, has to take the sawed-off shotgun and she shoots the... At Jensen? Yeah. And, and so we And so we get together with special effects and we, you know, they're on the location tech scout with us and say, this corner, we're going to put, we call them squibs. We just squib this corner, we'll run the wires this way, you have, we'll put in three hits. Um, a lot of times you'll get it on the first one because you once you get it, the corner getting blown off by a shotgun in the story, it's hard to patch up or they'll say, I need a half hour. And you go, we don't have a half hour. We got it good, right? A camera, you guys happy? B camera. We can do some playback now in digital. We'll actually rewind it. So all that stuff is ironed out because now that's props, visual effects, because they're going to do the muzzle flash and special effects where they're going to pre-plant those squibs a day ahead of time. Or a lot of times we'll do like a shootout and you'll do like three sections of plywood that you've pre-squibbed from behind that you can move in and out quickly. But all, all ahead of time, because again, the last thing you want to do, and as a director, you kill, you absolutely kill your crew when you go, no, can we, I don't, you know, I, you can't, it's yes or no, or this right. is how we're doing it. There's a thousand <laughs> ways to do this. This is the way yeah. we're doing it right now. Guys, seriously, literally. Such an honor. Such an honor. Yeah, thanks for having Original me. gangster Todd, <laughs> original gangster director guy. You guys are awesome. And, you know, we'll be back to talk for more because obviously there's 15 years of the show yeah, to talk yeah, about. Yeah. And you've been involved in so much of it that uh, your voices are super valuable. So thank you for being here. Cool. Yeah, thanks, thanks for thank having you. us. Absolutely. This is Jensen stopping in to say hey and let you know that we've got to take a quick break. Hey, guess what? We're back. Well, that was great, man. I could have talked to them for hours. Oh, my gosh. They will be back. We will talk to them more about other things. Yeah, because they, they don't go away on this uh, in this series. No, no, they've been around for uh, a good good chunk of the time the yeah. show's on the air. Well, just asking Todd about, you know, different things he dealt with being in post and uh, and Guy, of course, even his, you know, the history of other shows he's worked on. And, and, and you know, the Guy thing, we, we talked about it a little bit, but the, the idea of, of steady cam operator, it's not an easy job. And, and if you go back and you watch the series ER, which a lot of our listeners are younger than that, but if you go and watch it, things that now we take for granted... But the, the walk down the hallway, the fast-paced walk down the hallway, then the camera whips over and finds a patient in pain or whatever. It's all one shot. That's a steady cam operator walking backwards mm-hmm. down a, a crowded set. So there they are. It, and he was, you know, one of the OGs of that in the 90s when it became popular in, in series. Um, all right, let's do our mythology, hey? Okay, play the theme. Bum, bum, bum. Mythology. It's a creepy asylum. Damn right it is. <laughs> That's it, everybody. Thank you for joining. <laughs> it is. It's a creepy asylum. It's really it, and it, in real life, they've shot a lot of episodes there. I did an episode. Here's a fun fact. I did an episode of a NBC series called Mysterious Ways that we shot there in probably 2000 or 2001. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they do a lot of Vancouver shows shoot there. 
And uh, as we've mentioned, it really is haunted. While the Roosevelt Asylum is fake, the episode may have been inspired by the real-life events at the asylum, such as Blackwell's Island Asylum. It sounds like a vacation. (laughs) Come to Blackwell's Island Asylum. Check out our beach, our haunted museum, (laughs) Creedmoor Psychiatric Hospital, or the Athens... Lunatic Asylum. Well, well that's not... They're really hammering it home. It's all in the title there. Like, <laughs> the uh, Athens Lunatic Crazy People but Hovel. each one of those actual locations report things such as patient abuse, electroshock, unnecessary lobotomies, and brutal tactics of the late 19th and early 20th century. Other popular horror films that took place in mental hospitals, uh, Session 9, Haunting of Hill House, and Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. The only uh, argument I have with that sentence is I'm not sure Session 9 is a popular movie. I don't know that film. Well, just because you don't know it doesn't mean someone doesn't. <laughs> I'm just saying. But Babo, yeah. it's not just about creepy asylums and all. There's other fun little bits of trivia <laughs> sprinkled throughout the episodes. So here we go. Robbie, hmm. did you know that the men's health magazine that Sam is reading in the psychiatrist lobby features an interview with... Jared Padalecki. That's funny. I, I only reason I knew that is because I read this sentence, but so, I read it before I watched the episode, and I, I looked at it and paused it. I was couldn't tell if he was the person on the cover, but he, he definitely, right. uh, there's an article of him in it, so that's kind of fun. Now, here we go. The, the Riverview Hospital is the location the art department used, and they turned it into the Roosevelt Asylum. It's used a lot in Supernatural. I directed there myself, and it is a real asylum that's now abandoned. What did you, just out of curiosity for the fans, what did you direct there, shoot there? I'm trying to remember which episode it was, but it was a uh, coroner's, not office, uh, you know, the lab. lab. Oh, right, right. uh, Doing an autopsy. Dead bodies. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nigel Tufnell, the alias Dean uses at the bar, of course, is the lead guitarist of Spinal Tap. This goes up to 11. That's right. Rumor has it that Tom Welling was hiding in the backseat of the Impala during some of the scenes. That is literally an unprovable BS internet fact. Another rumor has it that supermodel Cheryl Ladd was over by craft service <laughs> while they sh- <laughs> shot the scene. Cheryl Ladd. <laughs> That's the, every reference of yours is in 1970s. <laughs> Rockford, Illinois. I, I, I love who I love. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Rockford, Illinois isn't a small town. It has a population of over 350,000. That's it. I, I'm out. If the, if the show's going to lie <laughs> to me. What can I believe? Yeah, the show's going to lie to me like that. <laughs> What else? When Sam shows Dean articles about R- Roosevelt Asylum in Dad's journal, the facing page has Wendigo information on it. Ah, there you yeah, go. You got to have a pause button to, to notice these things. Yep. You know, another thing that I'm just, I'm off the cuff here adding my own thing that I noticed. He uses a camcorder as they're watching. Uh, Sam's holding a camcorder as they walk through the asylum, you know, recording it all like. All right. Ten years later, Sam would be using a phone. That's right. It. That's right. Another piece of trivia. I'm going to go off script here as well. In the bar... When Dean goes up to talk to the cop, yeah, and Jared pulls him off and and shoves him away, right? You know, try to get him out of there. He shoves Dean into a man who's playing pool. That man is Lou Bolo, who was the stunt coordinator on Supernatural for its first eleven seasons. Yeah, till late in the game. Yeah, we love Lou. Love Lou. Such a great episode, buddy. And I, I love this one. And and again, I'm always fascinated watching this for the first time with what's happening with their personal lives and what Sam's going through. And you know, this one ends with a cliffhanger because uh, Sam gets a call, a phone call. He always answers it, and he says, "Dad." Dude, and it's a great cliffhanger because as soon as as soon as he popped up, I'm like, "Oh my gosh!" And he's like, "Dad," and he goes to black. Yeah, like. You're watching that next episode. Right. Like that's a that's a class A right. class A cliffhanger. And we haven't watched it yet, so I don't know what's gonna happen. I will say technically, uh, it was super fun to have Guy B here talking about how they shot that episode because it's a great episode of TV. It really it's is scary as hell. Mm-hmm. It's well done. The guest stars are great, but what's fascinating is how clever Guy and the crew had to be to execute some of those scares. Yeah. You know, to make them yeah. work. Because these are not all visual effects. A lot of these are in camera, which I did not know until right. he told us during the interview, because I had assumed it was some new visual effect. But no, it's an in-camera trick. The episode is full of those, and that makes me like the episode even more. Yeah, me too. And I loved what Todd had to say. Uh, I love the stories, like, with this one, because of the quick turnaround, he only had, like, four hours to get the director edit. <laughs> you and... get four hours to do your four-day cut. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> crazy. crazy. I-, I love those kind of stories, um, and that's why I could talk to them forever. So great. I want to thank everyone for listening to the podcast. And... Subscribe. Yeah, don't forget to subscribe and yeah. tell your friends. We're getting in there. We're getting in there. We're digging it up. We're digging up Supernatural, finding out what lies in the roots. 
Just loving your arborist sort of analogy. Of the whole thing. <laughs> I was I was sitting silently wondering where the hell you're going to go with that, and it it didn't really go far. It didn't go far, but I stayed with it. I stayed with it. I admire I that dirt and roots yeah. and roots and dirt. And with that, we leaf you. <laughs> hey, hey. Um, subscribe to the podcast, pretty please. Listen, share your share it with your friends, and uh, we love having you here. And come join us for the next one. This episode stars Jared Padalecki as Sam Winchester, Jensen Ackles as Dean Winchester. The guest stars include Peter Benson as Officer Kelly, Norman Amor as Dr. Sanford Ellicott, James Purcell as Dr. James Ellicott, Brooke Nevin as Catherine, Nicholas D'Agosto as Gavin, and Tom Pickett as Officer Daniel Gunderson. Asylum was written by Richard Hatem and directed by Guy Norman B. You know, love him or hate him, he did a good job with this episode. <laughs> Edited by Anthony Pinker. Music by Jay Gruska. Executive produced by Eric Kripke and Robert Singer. And it first aired November 22nd, 2005. This episode of Supernatural Then and Now was hosted and executive produced by Richard Spate Jr. and Rob Benedict. Produced by Stephen Hine, written by Stephen Hine and Hayda Holscher. Audio engineering by Caitlin Holly. And edited and associate produced by Trey Boudet. Music provided by Tim Wynn. Now! Ah, listen to that music. <laughs> I just love it. The episode was recorded with the help of Sonic Fuel Studios. This podcast is from Story Mill Media. For news on this and other podcasts, follow Story Mill Media on Instagram and Twitter. Well, we have such a treat today. We've got uh, a double header of uh, inner... Uh, <laughs> so, resuming... Episode Asylum, episode 110. Sam and Dean catch wind of a cop and wife being killed. Can't, like like gross wind? Like, <laughs> no, not a fart. You guys all have the same <laughs> tattoo on your butt cheek from whatever, well, whatever event. It's more of a tramp stamp. There, there are mar marks on somebody's butt cheeks. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not ink, though. We'll save that for another podcast. <laughs> no, this is good. This is good that we're doing this live. Live is good. I did not do that. You did that. <laughs> Your child. Wiener shack. Uh, locations that were... Uh, were curse, curse words. Curse words. Yeah. Also wiener um, shack. Uh, and also wiener shack. <laughs> there, uh, Other popular horror films that took place in a mental hospital. Metal hospital. That's just, it's a metal hospital. A lot of hospitals are made of brick and wood, but the metal. creepiest ones are metal. Are you texting? You. Weird. Story Bell Media. 